According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Philippians chapter 3 this evening. Philippians chapter 3, picking up where we left off uh, Sunday morning. Beware of the dogs. Actually, we're past that. I just like saying that. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. And uh, then Paul goes into his qualifications and all the other earthly requirements, things that he could boast about if he had a mind to do such a thing. So... Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study tonight. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble together. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness day by day and moment by moment. Uh, Bless our time tonight. Open the eyes of our understanding. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. All righty, we have a microphone runner ready to go, so we're ready for our leadoff question. I think Bill has a question, so we'll start there. If you want to get the microphone to uh, to Bill. Um, thinking about uh, discipline, um, so my question is kind of two-part. Is there corporate discipline amongst a local lampstand? And if there is, what would be the catalyst to bring about that uh, corporate discipline. The only thing that I could possibly think of would be if there was somebody in the congregation, you know, where it talks about that they're sinning or whatever, and you are to restore them. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, then I would assume there would be a corporate discipline. Other than that, um, yeah, Matthew 18 is is kind of the go-to chapter on that. Although Matthew 18 is not a church age passage. It's before Pentecost and it's a passage for, uh, as it applies to Israel. But nevertheless, it's the pattern that I think it's adapted for church age discipline. And so, yes, there is a place for corporate discipline. And uh, this is what was the issue in 1 Corinthians when they failed to apply church discipline against the man of incest. And then in 2 Corinthians, they failed to apply the, the, the remediation when he was supposed to have the discipline concluded and be brought back into the fellowship because he'd repented of that of that fornication. So uh, we do use Matthew 18 as the base text. Uh, but it's an adaptation of principles for Israel's assembly that we bring into uh, the church dispensation for our application there. Does that answer your question? Okay. All right. And we'll cross the aisle over here to Eliezer. Good to see you tonight. Any baby yet? Not yet. Okay. We keep praying. Uh, First John three sixteen. First John three sixteen. Not John three sixteen, but First John. First John three sixteen. Right. Gotcha. Which is uh, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I was wondering what this uh, meant, and then secondly, is the force of this usage very similar to that of Romans six eleven, which is consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. No, I agree. Yeah, it's similar. Um, yeah, we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so the idea of love, agape love, is sacrificial. Agape love 
benefits the object and it does not take into account the merit of the object. You know, God so loved the world not because we were lovely, but because God is love. And so that's the nature of sacrificial love. And this is the love that husbands are commanded to have for their wives. This is the love that we are to have for one another, for the brethren, even for our enemies, to love those who who persecute you, things of that nature. So it is a uh, love is an inner character, but it's expressed in such a way that it's observed. And here is way, a way that it's observed. So we know love by this. We can observe it, we can see it, we can identify that he, <clears throat> that he laid down his life for us. So what then is our obligation? We should love one another and we should be willing to lay down our lives. And, and, and there's no greater love than one laid down his life for his friends. And so all of those are the applications that, that we have in the church age to love one another. Does that answer what you were asking there? And then again, I do. I think in, in Romans 6, yeah, we're alive to God and dead to sin. And that's what we're supposed to consider ourselves as. And that too becomes a mental attitude that I think helps in fostering this love. Yeah. All right, thank you. Other questions tonight? Lewis has a question. I was uh, looking at Second Samuel 21 and I found myself scratching my head not knowing what to make of this passage. It has to do with the Gibeonites and uh, David slaughters them because of something Saul did to, in the past. Mm-hmm. And, well, um, so yeah, Saul, there was a famine in the days of David. I forget about this. Um David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. And um, yeah, so Saul was wrong for executing them. They had been deceptive during the days of Joshua, right? And they had been allowed to stay in the land, even under their deceptive circumstances. But Saul put them to death. And on that basis then came judgment to the nation of Israel because of Saul's wickedness. And that's, uh, that's important. Remember, David's wickedness too was leading to consequences. Saul's wickedness was leading to consequences. Any king, any husband, father, pastor, you know, a, a believer in authority, your disobedience has consequences. And so your nation suffers, your marriage suffers, your family suffers, your flock suffers. Uh, you know, in the case of Adam, the entire human race suffers because of Adam's original sin. So this is a principle that we see again and again and again. And, uh, and yeah, this is a situation here. What's curious though, the most unusual thing about it is that we don't learn about it in the Bible until years later. We don't learn about it until Second Samuel 21, even though Saul's been dead for, for quite some time. So it's, it is curious why there was a delay in recording that. And I don't know that I have an answer to that. So. All right. Appreciate that. Other questions tonight? We had a good one this morning, I know, with respect to the gospel, so um, I want to make sure we're clear on that. Do we, know, do we know the difference between believe in and believe that? You ever thought about that? Doug, you had the question, didn't you? Or who was it that had the question this morning? It doesn't matter who had the question, but um, the, the difference between believe in and believe that, Okay. And that's important. In fact, we had a a special class a few Sundays ago where I took a whole Sunday night to address believe in versus believe that. And and so start asking yourself the idea of pistuo to believe, uh, which requires patho to be persuaded. You can't believe anything unless you're persuaded. 
And so how does this dynamic work when the Holy Spirit's persuading us, but we still then on the basis of that persuasion, we must believe. We must pistua, we must believe. And what do we believe in? All right? And so this then becomes the question. I think it's a useful question. And it's a question that actually sparks friendly discussions, and then sometimes the friendly discussions become not quite so friendly. And that's sad, particularly when you get two different groups that both have grace in their title, and and they're not they should be more gracious towards each other. And, uh, and there's, so there's an aspect there. So the question is then, in order, if you're giving the gospel to somebody and you, and, and you know for a fact that if they die tonight, they're going to go to hell. And so you know they're unbelievers, you know they're going to hell, and you want to give them a clear gospel, we want to be clear about it. We want to be clear about the good news we're communicating, and we also want to be clear about the, the only object for their saving faith that they must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ himself, the person of Jesus Christ, is the only object for salvation, for eternal life. And there's a whole lot of other things that they could believe that, uh, information, facts, uh, things about Jesus, all right? But you can believe a fact about Jesus all day long. You could believe a thousand facts about Jesus, and not believe in Jesus for eternal life. And that's the distinction. And so we were having that discussion this morning. And Doug, did you have a, a question on that? We can get a microphone to you. I had my uh, vehicle towed this morning by a, a Muslim fellow that I had actually met before because uh, I had a car problem a couple years ago. Same fellow. God brought him to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he believes that. Jesus was a prophet, but he does not believe in Jesus Christ like I believe in Jesus Christ. So right. it was made pretty clear to me this morning before I got to uh, ABC and sat down. I was a little late and sat down with y'all, and uh, uh, you were talking about FGA, Free Grace, what is it, Alliance? Free Grace Alliance is the FGA, and then Grace Evangelical Society is the GES. What uh, what was the split uh, between those two. <laughs> you know, it was interesting, and it happened in, uh, I guess, 2004. It happened years back, but um, a lot of things, really. But um, the, the, I think the biggest trigger was some of the um, uh, reaction against Zane Hodges and an article that Zane Hodges had written in the journal, the Grace Evangelical Society journal. And his words were twisted, and they created an emotional catchphrase like "crossless gospel," and they used uh, they used very hurtful language to attack Zane Hodges and to attack all of GES, as a matter of fact. And uh, they took a very useful theological discussion that belongs in journals and conferences and places like that, but they weaponized it and they threw it out to a general church audience. And really poison, I think, uh, many of our churches against Zane, against Zane Hodges, and uh, label different people with crossless gospel language. See, I've been labeled with it. I've had people come and ask me, I heard you preach the crossless gospel. And I just laugh at them and say, you know, because you don't know what you're talking about anyway, and it's not true. And Zane didn't preach the crossless gospel either, by the way. But that's what he was uh, accused of. It's like, you know, when, when the accusation goes that, you know, you're separating children from their families, then, you know, it's, it's horrendous. Who would do such a thing? And you must be evil. And uh, I, I'm thankful that Zane went to heaven. That doesn't have to deal with any of this stuff. So as far as that goes. So we do not preach a crossless gospel. Are we clear on that? But we want to be clear 
that when you're giving information, Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. That's, that's good news. That's good news. But I'm not believing in facts. I'm placing my faith in a person. See, and the biggest difference is, you had a question, just bring the microphone up front. We had a, the, the biggest difference is there are a, a billion people or more that believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. But they're not trusting in Christ for their eternal life. They're trusting in the Virgin Mother. They're trusting in the Queen of Heaven. They're trusting in the Roman Church. They're trusting in their liturgy, their ritual. They're trusting in everything but the person of Christ, even though they know. They believe that He died on the cross for their sins. But they're not placing their faith in that for, for eternal life. And so that's the, that's the difference there. Does that make sense? All right, you had a question? Well, I really just wanted to kind of ask a clarification. The believe that's are not a bad thing if you can go from them to the believe in. Yes, that's right. So the more believe that's that you get that are actually biblically correct, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people believe that Jesus was something he wasn't. But if if the believe that's are are biblical, Mm -hmm. it makes it easier to believe in. You can be led that way. I, I agree, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and so one of the other debates is, what if you don't know that, that he was God? You know, if you, don't, if you don't believe in the deity of Christ, can you still believe in Christ for eternal life? What if you're confused on eternal security? And so these are the, these are the questions. And what they've done, I think, when they attacked Hodges and they tried to improve upon GES, I think they just made matters worse because they threw three other items out there that made bigger problems for themselves. And so now they've got divisions in their own camp about... If you don't believe in eternal security, then you aren't saved, right? Well, what if you believed in Jesus? The Bible says you're saved, you know, and then you get your doctrine straightened out later when you're growing in the Word of God, right? Or uh, uh, in my case, I didn't know that Jesus was God until after I was saved and was in Sunday school and learned later on different things. And uh, so, you know, I've had PhD people tell me, well, you weren't saved when when you thought you were saved. You were saved later when you learned that Jesus was God and then you believed in Jesus later see, kind of a thing. Well, you know, the, the natural man can't learn the Word of God anyway, so how did I learn those things unless I was saved and I was learning the Word of God and, and processing those things? So anyway, that's, so what I try to do, and I'm doing it here tonight, I'll do it anytime you want to sit down. Uh, when, when you want to make a clear gospel message, you can communicate all the good news in the world you want, but believe in Jesus Christ. The object of faith is Jesus Christ. And that's and, and when you're bringing that person to that moment, say, you know, is there anything now? I like the the question that Evangel asked. Is there anything now that's preventing you, keeping you from believing in Jesus Christ to receive His gift of eternal life? Because that's what it is: believing in Jesus Christ. So I appreciate that. All right. Uh, final question over here. We'll go to Mr. Dowdy in the in the Amen corner. I'd like you to draw your attention to 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. This is uh, two verses concerning the naming of Solomon. Now, I'm trying to figure out what the purpose of this passage is. It seems like David and Bathsheba had a son. They named him Solomon, which roughly means, if correct me if I'm wrong, peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, word came to Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah, which means uh, beloved of the Lord. Mm-hmm. That That's the only place that you find that name. Correct. And 
it, it seems like the the for the Lord's sake he named him that. Mm -hmm. Now I'm wondering why why would this name be put there for the Lord's sake and it's never been used anywhere else? Uh, and what's the significance of this naming passage? I mean, it doesn't seem to, you know, it, it, David and Bathsheba named him one thing, and Nathan said his name is this, and then that's all we hear about it. That's mm -hmm. it, the end of it. No, I think there's a lot of good things that happen there. It's, it's a powerful chapter, of course, it's the adultery chapter and the death of the baby and the sadness there, the murder of Uriah. And I mean, terrible things are happening in chapters 11 and 12, but the uh, the naming of Solomon, if you think about it, there's a Davidic covenant that has already previously been uttered back in chapter 7. And it's a Davidic covenant that's talking about David and his offspring, David and his heritage, and David and his son. And David's not going to be allowed to build the temple, but his son will build the temple. And so there are prophecies that speak of the son of David and the coming kingdom, for example. And so there's prophecies that apply to the literal son Solomon, but really they look beyond him to the ultimate son of David, which is Jesus Christ. And I think the same thing happens here with a name, and the giving of a name that he never adopts, that he never employs, that he never uses is significant, because I think it goes too to the sense that um, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will name him Emmanuel. And yet here comes Jesus, and he's born, and the, the same angel says, no, name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mm. And so Jesus walks this earth as Jesus. He never does walk this earth as Emmanuel in his first advent, and yet that's a prophecy that applies to him. So I think the pattern for that is being played out here in the sense of, of uh, Solomon, who's given the name Jedediah, but he never, he never embraces it, never employs it, never uses it, and, uh, and that's set there as a pattern. Does that make sense? Yes, so, it does. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a curious chapter too, by the way, and it makes me laugh every time um, because, I mean, depending on your sense of humor, you might also laugh or not laugh, I don't know. But um, some things make people laugh, they don't make other people laugh, does that make sense? But anyway, so this is, I mean, this is terrible. The child dies, right? Um, he covers up his sin for nine months, and then he's exposed, and then the child dies. He has seven days to, to weep and lament, and then the child dies, and then and then when he's done with the fasting, he gets dressed and he's, and, and, uh, he's going to recover. You know, what do you do when you're recovering from reversionism? What do you do when you're back in fellowship and you've got to be back in the Word of God? You've got to be back in the plan of God. You've got to be, you, you can't be carnal. And, uh, and so it's curious, David comforted his wife Bathsheba that, you know, it's his sin, he's recovering from this, but it's also her sin mm -hmm. and she has to recover too. He's got to shepherd her through this whole, this whole recovery. So he comforted his wife Bathsheba and he went into her and lay with her and she gave birth to a son. And so this was, again, another nine-month process and another long period of, of spiritual recovery on that. Mm. So anyway, that's the passage there. Thank you. Uh -huh. I'm sorry? Beloved of God, beloved of Yahweh. Yeah. All right. Well, appreciate those questions. Let's... Uh, Return to Philippians. Thank you, Chris, for running the microphone. All right. So finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Repetition is good. Repetition is protective. Repetition drives the point home. And uh, to say the same thing again and again and again is useful. And so that's what he does in verse 2 when he says, beware, beware, beware. And it's blapeta all three times. And it's, 
It's uh, an imperative from Bleppo, and and uh, we discuss the nature of whether it should be beware or keep your eye on or things like that. But regardless, there's three objects. There's dogs, evil workers, and mutilation. Or it says here false circumcision. I don't like the translation false circumcision. I do like mutilation with uh, what he's done there with the three Ks. He took three nouns that all start with kappa. So uh, beware the, uh, the KKK, if you will. And uh, this is... This is how I put it. Watch out for. Watch out for. And really, I think, uh, I do agree with one of the papers that we were discussing, uh, a study done by uh, a Greek scholar named Kilpatrick, who observed the fact that it's not really beware in the sense of there's an active danger at the moment, but have your eyes open. Take due note of. So beware may not strictly be the best sense, but its triple repetition makes it stronger than a simple admonishment to take due note of. Okay, And I do think that take due note of is the best way to render it, even though it is repeated three times. It is repeated three times for the emphasis, but it's still not a beware. It's still a blepeta plus the, uh, plus the indicative and, uh, and the aspect there. Anyway, uh, when you look at 1 Corinthians 1.26, when you look at 1 Corinthians 10.18, and Colossians 4.17, in none of those places does it make sense to translate it as beware, all right? So it's not a beware of the dogs kind of thing as if there's one right there ready to bite you, but to be mindful of, to take due note of, look at, see? And so that becomes useful too. And we want to do the same thing ourselves. We want to do the same thing. Any grace ministry wants to uh, be mindful of what happens with legalism, See, so 1 Corinthians one twenty six says, consider your calling. It doesn't say beware of your calling. It says, consider your calling, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And it makes no sense to render that as beware. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 10.18, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? It doesn't make any sense to render that as beware of the nation of Israel, but look at the nation of Israel. So look at the dogs, look at the evil workers, look at the mutilation, and uh, watch out. Don't allow that legalism to creep into your ministry. And so dogs, evil workers, and mutilation all begin with the Greek letter kappa, and they're all descriptive of Jewish arrogance. And what they're doing is they're taking Jewish insults and turning them around and applying them to, uh, to themselves. These terms are inverting typical Jewish boasts so as to highlight the spiritual realities. So a, a typical Jewish boast would ridicule a, a Gentile and call him a dog. Call him a Gentile dog. And Paul says, you know what, spiritually speaking, you guys are the dogs. Spiritually speaking, you guys are unclean. Spiritually speaking, you guys have returned to your vomit in, uh, in a dog-like fashion. All right, And so Paul is turning it back on these legalists and sh- to show the spiritual realities for what they are, inverting typical Jewish boasts so as to highlight the spiritual realities. And so kunis is the term for dogs, uh, kakus for evil, uh, kakus ergatas for evil workers. Again, it's accusative masculine plural, same as with dogs, it's accusative masculine plural. But then you get to the singular with the mutilation the mutilation. I don't like the translation false circumcision, uh, for we are the true circumcision. That's to me, 
That is a, that's a very problematic translation between verse 2 and verse 3. Because it, it just seems, if I'm reading this in the English, it just seems like I've got the word for circumcision in both verses, and then I've got an adjective in verse 2 that means false, and I've got an adjective in verse 3 that means true. Right? And that's, that's how it comes across. And that's not what, it, what Paul is saying. That's not what's in the text. That's not what's in the, in the Greek. And so he's deliberately twisting the word for the only time circumcision appears is in verse 3. The paratime is in verse 3. The circumcision is there. What he does is he makes a joke out of it. He, he uh, deliberately changes the peri to a kata. He, t- he takes it from paratime to katatame specifically to have their, uh, well, to make a K out of it so he can have a KKK in his kunas, kakus, and, and katatame. But it makes the point. It makes the point that they are not. Yes, they might be physically circumcised, but all they are is just mutilating themselves. They, are not, they have not circumcised their heart. They, have, they are not spiritually uh, in agreement with the plan of God. And we're going to say some, uh, talk about some more issues on this with respect to uh, our own circumcision and our own uh, reality here coming up. So stay tuned as we, as we look at that. In any event, this is, uh, this is the warning. So uh, if we don't want to render it as beware, we can just simply render it as um, take due note of, look at, look to, uh, take due note of the dogs, take due note of the evil workers, take due note of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision. We, the body of Christ, the, the, the body and bride of Jesus Christ, we are the circumcision. And that's what we're going to uh, deal with there. All right. Now on Sunday, uh, I changed the slides a little bit. So if you, um, I swapped around my C and my D. And so hopefully it's easy enough to do that. Um, This was originally point D and I made it point C. Uh, Jews viewed dogs as unclean and worthless scavengers. It was also a very long point of study. So I broke it down and it didn't change anything. I just broke it down into some sub points and and helped to make it more um, outlined or more structured. Uh, Jews viewed dogs as unclean and worthless scavengers. Uh, Philistines and Arameans likewise viewed them the same way. Uh, Religious, legalistic Jews gave this pejorative label to Gentiles as well as to unrepentant or unobservant Jews. Yet Jesus showed grace to one dog for her faith. And we talked about that in Matthew 15. Uh, Paul, Peter, and John were all negative to dogs. The conclusion though really, and I think it's clear, when you turn to Acts chapter 16 and you see the founding of this church, the founding of this group, there was no synagogue in in Philippi. There was no significant Jewish population in Philippi. Uh, the, The Jews had been expelled from Rome and likely had been expelled from all the Roman colonies as well which would have included any, any synagogue or any Jews that were located in Philippi. So when they, normally Paul's first routine when he arrives in a new town, first place he goes is the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue, he introduces himself, he takes part in their Saturday services. Uh, but he can't do that in Philippi. Instead he goes out to a riverside and uh, believes he's going to find some believers there that are assembling for prayer. And that's exactly what he finds. So since there was no synagogue in Philippi and no significant Jewish presence, the triple warning then serves to watch out against such religious legalism from even beginning. So they're not here yet, and if they start to come in here, don't let them. They're not here yet, uh, but just keep your eyes out and don't let that even start. Don't let it even begin. Because if you, 
you know, it's like the camel's nose under the tent. If you let if you let that little nose get in under the tent, the rest of the camel's coming right next. All right, so just you gotta you gotta uh, stop it when you can. All right, and trust me, you don't want a camel in your tent. Those things stink. They are the stinkiest things I've ever been around. I was in Saudi Arabia for a desert storm, and and. Um, bunch of us got together and, and uh, we, we paid this Bedouin. I paid him 10 bucks for, uh, to ride his camel. And, uh, and I got close enough to smell the thing and said, you can keep the 10 bucks. I am not climbing on that nasty smelling thing. So anyway, the uh, aspects there. Now, what does it mean to be the circumcision? Okay, We are the circumcision. We collectively are. And remember, this does switch to the singular. Just as in verse 2, the dogs is plural, evil workers are plural, but mutilation is singular. Same thing in verse 3, circumcision is singular. And yet it's we, plural, are the circumcision, singular. And so we need to recognize what this is then. What is this in the church age? And how is a metaphor from the Old Testament being applied to us in the church age? It is very similar to the, the metaphor of Passover that was used of Jesus. And so the point is this, point three, we are the circumcision even as Christ is the Passover. Even as Christ is the Passover. And so really there's a, I think we can draw a, a, a fairly simple analogy between Philippians 3.3 3 and 1 Corinthians 5.7. In the sense that Paul is using the same author for both passages, is using an Old Testament symbol, using an Old Testament uh, ritual, an Old Testament uh, festival, uh, and taking the spiritual truth from that ritual and then bringing it into the church age to show us, to show, well, to show Jesus in the case of Passover, but to show us the church, the bride. In, uh, in the case of circumcision, all right? So let's, uh, let's start with this. Let's start with 1 Corinthians 5, 7, so we see what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, which says, um, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. All right? Christ, our Passover. And so this is, the, this is what we're talking about. This is an Old Testament ritual, an Old Testament feast. Israel, the Jewish people observed Passover every year. It was in the spring of every year. And yet it's being brought forward now and applied to Jesus. Jesus is our Passover. See, in the body of Christ, in the New Testament. We don't have a Passover in the sense that you and I, we don't get together and commemorate our deliverance out of Egypt because we weren't delivered out of Egypt. That wasn't us. That was the Jews in the Old Testament. Okay? So uh, if you want to be you know, hyper-literal about it, we don't have a Passover. We weren't there. But we do have a Passover in that we have Jesus. Okay? Jesus fulfills what the Passover was all about. So Subpoint so A. Just follow this thought now. We don't have a Passover ritual, but Israel did. Israel did. Christ is our Passover in the sense that the spiritual realities of their Passover 
are our realities in Christ. Okay? And I hope we can understand this. And we'll look at Exodus 12 here in a moment. We don't have a Passover ritual, but Israel did. Okay? And by the way, it's going to be returned. Israel will observe the Passover again in the tribulation and in the millennium. They're going to observe Passover for all thousand years of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All right. Christ is, is our Passover in the sense that the spiritual realities of their Passover are our realities in Christ. Okay? And so what are we talking about? In Exodus 12, what are we talking about? We're talking about a body of people that need to be redeemed, right? We've got Jewish people that are slaves in Egypt. And that's the literal reality for the Jewish people. They're a body of, of, of people that need to be redeemed. And they're going to be redeemed. Their, their kinsman redeemer is going to redeem them. And that's what it's all about. Let's look at Exodus 12. And so the parallel is, is inescapable as far as what the, the typology is, what the symbolism is, uh, what's our connection to this. We can understand that we were all dead in our uh, trespasses and sins, that we were all uh, in slavery and bondage to the slave market of sin. And we needed to be redeemed. We needed a redeemer to bring us out. And so just as they had a Redeemer that brought them out, we have a Redeemer that brought us out. And, uh, and of course, Jesus is the, uh, the Lamb. And so we have this here. Uh, it's very significant. Uh, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. And, and for, for thousands of years, March was the beginning of the, of the year until... A Roman system decided to make that January <laughs> instead of March, but okay. Um, just remind yourself that in the ancient world, the the spring vernal equinox was the uh, was the new year. And uh, anyway, you'll be more biblical with it. So it is to be the first month of the year. Speak to the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, "On the tenth of this month." They're each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. All right, and again, this is the brutal patriarchy at work. It's the father's household, and it's the, the headship of the husbands and the fathers and the responsibility that they have towards their wives, towards their children, and, uh, and so forth. And notice it's on the 10th of the month. The lamb must be selected on the 10th, Nisan 10. Okay, the month was called Nisan. And um, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Now why are we picking out a lamb on one day and holding on to it for this time and then killing it on the 14th? Okay, from the 10th to the 14th. Alright, now there's a lot of typology in this too, but fulfilled in Christ, Palm Monday on Nisan 10 and then Good Friday on Nisan 14. The lamb was selected on Nisan 10. Even as Christ entered Jerusalem and the children sang Hosanna, Hosanna, they identified their Savior. The Lamb was selected on Nisan 10, but He was crucified on Nisan 14. And we see the typology here. And so you keep it until the 14th day, the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. 
And moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And so not only does the animal have to die, but then the blood has to be applied. Keep in mind, the application of the blood is is critical. The death does not finish the process. The death is not the totality of the procedure. And uh, there's, there's doctrine there as well. The death of Christ, as I preach unlimited atonement, I believe we, we, we proclaim this is our doctrinal position at the church, is unlimited atonement. The death is sufficient for the whole world, but for whom is the blood applied? See, the application of the blood comes when the unbeliever believes in Jesus Christ to receive eternal life. And so the blood was shed when the blood was shed, but the blood is applied when the blood is applied. So this is what we see here. And so the blood has to be applied in verse 7. And then they've got their eating process and they're supposed to be standing up and eating quickly and having their feet shod and ready to uh, go forth because they're going to go forth in haste. They have to eat in haste. You shall eat it in this manner. And they, they, they're going to eat army style. This is what we used to eat <laughs> in, the, in the army, right? And uh, you're, you're standing up, you're, you're eating in haste, and then you're moving on about the mission is how that goes. You just don't have time. You can chew later, swallow later, just, you know. That's the old army prayer. It's, Dear Lord, get it down and keep it down. Yeah. Now, Here's what happens though. In the context of this blood having been shed and in the context of blood being applied is the coming judgment. And it says in verse 12, I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so this is the, this is the doctrine right here. When he sees the blood, he passes over. That's why it's called Passover. In any event, it should be clear how all of this ritual and all this uh, history for the Jews in the Old Testament, what we, how we understand our application, because Christ is our Passover. He's the blood that was shed. He's the blood that was shed and applied. He's the blood that the Father saw when He passed over our sins. And it's on the basis of His blood then that any of us have, uh, have forgiveness. And so all of this then is uh, the doctrine that happens here. When you get down to verse 23 of Exodus 12, the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. And it's curious to me, the language of destroyer, there's the same word as redeemer. All right, this is the goel, this is the kinsman redeemer. He's also the blood avenger and the destroyer. Anyway, so this is what we have. And uh, and it's to be uh, taught, it's to be passed on to the next generation. The children are to be, have it explained to them about why this day is different and, and what's happening here. Alright. And then of course judgment comes and Pharaoh's firstborn dies and all the firstborn die that don't have the, uh, the blood applied to their doorposts. So this is the Passover. We don't have a Passover. But Christ is our Passover when we 
understand the doctrine. We want to understand the reality that the ritual points to. Christ is our Passover. Now, that's the concept we're going to now take as an analogy and bring it across into Philippians and say, okay, circumcision. We are the circumcision. How does that work? (laughs) All right. We are the circumcision. Well, we don't have a circumcision ritual, but Israel did. All right. There's nothing in the New Testament that says when, uh, you know, somebody believes in Christ to receive eternal life, that the first thing you need to do is go circumcise them. Okay. That's not a church age ritual. And that's not, uh, it's a matter of culture for a lot of folks, but it's not a biblical application for faith in Christ. We don't have a circumcision ritual, but Israel did. Genesis 17, 10-14. We are the circumcision ritual in the sense that the spiritual realities of our sign and seal are evident in our spiritual service before God. It's just the same concept as with the Passover. The spiritual realities are evident in our uh, spiritual service before God. And so it's the same thing that we just did with Passover and applied it to Christ. Now we're going to apply, take it with circumcision and apply it to us. Okay? That the spiritual realities of our sign and our seal are evident in our spiritual service before God. All right, so let's start with Genesis 17. What does this mean to be circumcision? We are the circumcision. Well, we are the sign and the seal of a covenant people in relation, in a spiritual relationship with God. All right, Genesis 17. And uh, how many times has God promised blessings to, uh, to Abraham? All right, starting in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. A little bit of a side trip in chapter 16 with the birth of Ishmael. Okay, and yet chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. This is the El Shaddai introduction here. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. So he's restating the covenant here and significantly He's doing so after the birth of Ishmael, all right? He's doing so after the birth of Ishmael. All the other statements were before the birth of Ishmael. David, or not David, um, Abraham's great failure here in uh, taking matters into his own hands and attempting, you know, God doesn't need our help to fulfill his own promises. And uh, he promised a child. And... uh, it wasn't with the handmaiden. It wasn't with the, the son of the bondwoman. It's with the son of the free woman, the son of promise that this child is going to come. So Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And the order on this is going to be significant. Okay, Paul makes a big deal about this in Galatians, the fact that Paul was called while he was still uncircumcised, and that he's the father of, of the faithful, he's the father of believers, and this was while he was still uncircumcised. But I think it's significant too that 
Ishmael was born to Abram. Isaac was born to Abraham. That the name change came after the birth of Ishmael and before the birth of Isaac. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed, your descendants after you, through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right? Now, this is not with Ishmael. This is with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? We want to be clear on this. Now, God said further to Abraham, we get to the circumcision issue here. It's the first time it's mentioned. Circumcision was not in chapter 12, it was not in chapter 13, 14, 15, and now it's introduced here in 17. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Now how do they keep the covenant? It was unconditional. Everything was on God's side. All the stipulations were on God's side. and The Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing is all unconditional. I will, I will, I will. There's no if you will. There's no, it's not a Mosaic covenant, right? Are we familiar with the Mosaic covenant? If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I'll curse you. And all the conditions that were attached. The Abrahamic covenant had no conditions for Abraham to uphold. None. Until he's given this sign and seal of circumcision. And he does this as a facet of obedience, not as a requirement to hold up his end of the covenant. But it is called a sign and it is called a seal. So verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. And we're going to see with uh, uh, the Apostle Paul's qualifications. He's going to claim this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And um, throughout your generations, a servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if he does not bear the sign and the seal of the covenant, he is not welcome to participate in the um, sacred functions of the assembly. Can't can't function in in the worship, can't function in the in the, the Passover, Pentecost, any of the, the ceremonies and, and things there. All right. So this is a physical requirement to illustrate belonging as a physical people. God's covenant nation on this earth. The physical nation of Israel. An earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations. In the midst of non-circumcised nations. Right? And this then became the mark. This became the, the, uh, the issue. David, when he was going up against the, the Philistines, said this uncircumcised Philistine is, is going to fall. That he had killed the lion, he killed the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine would be like the, the lion or the bear. David wasn't scared of the giant because he was an uncircumcised Philistine. 
And, uh, and that's the, the reality of it there. So for the sign and for the seal. Now, I think we can let the rest of this go. There is, though, a desire. Sarah gets a new name as well. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And um, she will be blessed as well. There is a question here, as Abraham says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you, in verse 18. See, Abraham knows that he was wrong. Abraham knows that Ishmael is not the, the child of promise. And God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Laughter, Isaac. Uh, because of all the <laughs> the laughing that led up to that. And I will establish my covenant with him. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He's not the God of Ishmael. We want to be clear on that. Um, anyway, there are some Ishmael blessings, temporal life blessings, wealth and whatnot. Um, and Abraham uh, circumcises Ishmael. But uh, Ishmael is not the child of promise. So that's that's the ritual. That's the sign. And so circumcision is a sign. It is called a seal in the book of Romans. It is the sign and the seal of their position as God's earthly people. All right? The sign and seal of Israel's position as God's covenant nation is circumcision. We, however, are the circumcision. We, our spiritual realities are evident, okay? And it might be a strange way to express it. It might seem uh, awkward, but this is what the text says, and so we go with it. Romans 4, verses 11 and 12. By the way, as far as a sign and a seal is concerned, isn't it awkward? I mean, in what context do you prove it? In what context, you know, are you ever challenged to show your ID, you know, at a border crossing or wherever? All right. Now think about it, though. Think about how personal this is, how private this is, who, you know, who sees this kind of thing, who, um, but no, I'm serious, though. I mean, it's a little bit culturally awkward for us to talk about here tonight, but it's what it was. All right. Anyway. I have a lot of questions myself when I get to heaven. All right. Romans 4. So we have Abraham, our forefather. And uh, was he justified by works or was he justified by faith? And uh, clearly it's faith. And uh, the uh, verse 5 tells us, or verse 4 tells us, Romans 4, 4, uh, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. If you've worked for it, it's not grace. You earned it, you deserved it, you got a paycheck. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And that's the whole doctrine right there. Now when you get to verse 9 it says, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? 
And he makes the point that Genesis 15, in that statement about being at reckoned him as righteousness, he hadn't been circumcised yet. He doesn't get circumcised till chapter 17. And so, no, he says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So in other words, Gentiles also can believe. Any Jew, any Gentile, anybody can believe in Jesus Christ to receive eternal life. The justification by faith is available to anybody. It's not limited to the circumcised covenant earthly nation. But then it says in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. And so this is where we have the language of the sign and the seal. This is where we have the language of a testimony. A testimony to who he was. A testimony to who his children are. The covenant people of God. And they are the earthly people with an earthly uh, ritual. With an earthly sign of circumcision. We are a heavenly people. We are a spiritual people. And we are the circumcision. And we're going to see the three things that stand out in this sign and seal. That is we worship in the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. All right, so he received the sign of the circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of his faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And so we have this language of the sign and the seal. You might also notice couple of other things that come with this. Even with the ritual, what does Romans 2.29 tell us? Romans 2.29 says, uh, let me back up, verse 28 or even verse 27. Goodness, there's a whole circumcision paragraph here. But notice, it's not the outward circumcision that counts. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from man, but from God. See, even in the Old Testament, even with the outward ritual, they still were supposed to digest the spiritual reality. They still should have understood and appreciated and lived out the spiritual reality. Knowing that when you circumcise your boy when he's eight days old, that doesn't save him that he still must trust in his coming Messiah. He still must get saved. It's a circumcision of the heart. And I think this is the exact situation why he called them the, the mutilation. He called them the, the, the katatame instead of the paratame. He said, uh, you know, we're the true circumcision. We're the circumcision and they're the mutilation. Because all they do is chop off foreskins. They don't have the spiritual reality of serving the Lord their God. Even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, this was, this was highlighted. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. And to me it's curious because in, in Deuteronomy... It's almost like God is giving them Old Testament history ahead of time, talking about the curses, the blessings, and, uh, and what happens when He does you know, restore them in the ultimate kingdom here. I think that's, uh, that's clear in the first five verses. 
real quickly as we're coming at the end of our hour. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 1, It shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. Remember they had to rehearse these things. Six tribes were the blessing and six tribes were the cursing. And they're rehearsing these things. And he says, this is not just a rehearsal, it's going to happen. <laughs> you're going to be blessed, you're going to be cursed. The nation through their history. But um, in all the, you will call these things to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. Here in, in Deuteronomy 30, he's promising them a global dispersion. He's promising them that the nation will be scattered to the, to the four corners of the earth. But he's, he's going to regather them from the four corners of the earth. And you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Okay? This is what they were promised. This is why Jeremiah had the easiest ministry in the world saying, look, we're going to captivity. And Moses warned you about this. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there He will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. When we combine this with Jeremiah, we learn that He's going to write His law upon their hearts, that He's going to usher them into the new covenant. And the Lord will circumcise their heart. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. All right, so this is what they have. In any event, Israel should have been aware of these spiritual realities, and sadly they were not. Sadly they crucified their Christ. Sadly they went into global dispersion. The church was then ushered in, and Paul says, guess what? We are the circumcision. We are the sign. We are the seal. We are the evidence of a spiritual walk before God. And we'll come back on Sunday and we're going to talk about these things that uh, Philippians 3 is dealing with. We worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in, in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Those are the three details that Philippians 3 is saying here is the mark of us being circumcision. We worship in the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. All right? So Lord willing, rapture pending, that's what we're going to touch on Sunday morning, how we worship in spirit and in truth, how we glory in Christ, and how we don't claim any earthly credentials. We don't boast in anything that we ourselves might lay before anybody else as being a mark of of credit, a mark of benefit, a mark of uh, superiority, any kind of, uh, anything that we think is to our advantage, write it off. Put it in the, in the debit column and say, no, that's, that's loss. Everything we have is the grace of Jesus Christ in the church age. So Father, I thank you for tonight and help us to understand this metaphor. It's, uh, it's uh, awkward in some respects and, and uh, maybe not as intuitive as the Passover metaphor for, uh, uh, in its application to Jesus. But nevertheless, uh, the circumcision metaphor is applied to us in the body of Christ. And how it is that we are the circumcision. So, Father, make these things clear as we understand what the spiritual realities are in our walk before you. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.